that was a crescendo there. I know. I'm all I'm all like <laughs> tense. <laughs> I'm all clenched up a little bit. Hey everybody. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. And I am Jonathan. And we are the Mighty Chromecast. We're uh coming at you in the middle of uh well, it's not even the middle at this point. We're like in the home stretch of season six. Solidly. Yeah. Far down the road to Linkmar. Whoa! We're like fifty miles outside of Memphis or something. Yeah. I can see the smoky smokestacks. Of of Linkmar. Of Linkmar. Is Linkmar Memphis? Uh, is, is Linkmar Detroit? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but I think of Linkmar as Louisville. Do I can see that? Yeah. It's that river city, dude. Yeah. Uh Halal is, Halal is the Ohio. Yep. <laughs> uh this is episode seven. We are going to continue on that that road to Lake Mar. Uh we're talking about uh Claws from the Night, which was published in nineteen fifty one, and then also The Price of Pain Ease, which was published later in nineteen seventy. That's what you're gonna get this episode. What is the price of pain ease? It's a heavy price, dude. It's like eleven ninety nine for some uh, hundred proof Heaven Hill. Why do they do that ninety nine on the end? I don't know. Why isn't it just twelve dollars? Taxes. No. Yeah. It's it's uh those those admin they're they started it on a show I think. John Ham. <laughs> John Ham <Hamm laughs> is the responsible agent for uh, the ninety nine at the end of prices. It wouldn't be that way if we were in charge. Mm-mm. I would be O ones, O ones all day long. Twelve O one. That'd be that's how I would make my money. I would be like, it would be, you know, just fractions of a cent. Yeah, see, everyone else has price of set at eleven ninety nine. You're like a silver age Batman villain. <laughs> I'm the, He's a penny pincher. <laughs> Everything's twelve O one or more. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have exact change, Batman. My uh, my grandma would be really proud of me. She likes <laughs> she she's frugal. She's she's of that of that era, right? Yeah, she's a profiteer. <laughs> No, (laughs) you got you got an old piece of mail flip it over and that's your grocery list you don't want to waste that paper nope don't waste it Mm -mm. my mom does the same thing and she's lost many important lists (laughs) where is it i know it's here somewhere i put it on the back of an envelope (laughs) mailed it (laughs) oh no uh yeah (laughs) the frugal life with john josh and luke it's Uh, a life hack we have so many Sweet-esque podcast that we've come up with over over the years, I think. I think so, too. Yeah. <laughs> I think once we start the uh, Chromecast Podcasting Network and add shows, you know, uh, except for Bourbon and Barbarians, including Bourbon and Barbarians. Uh, <laughs> Let's think bigger. Let's have, like, a lifestyle network. Yeah. Ooh. I like that. Yeah. Buy a channel on the, those really high numbers on the cable box. Classy, dude. Okay, so, John, what you drinking? I have Evan Williams tonight. Uh, Evan and I are getting acquainted. Nice. Solid. Black Label. The first distillery in Kentucky, it says. Have you had their uh, single barrel? It's a superior bourbon there. I I like that one. Pretty good. Yeah. Cool. How about you fellers? We're drinking something special tonight. This, this uh, This vintage can't be had just anywhere. That's right. It can actually be had only in one place. <laughs> so far, only one one batch has been made, right? That's right. Uh, and we're uh, halfway through that batch. By the time this episode ends, we will have drank two uh, two <laughs> bottles of my first uh, fermented <laughs> apple wine, my apple wine uh, that 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 I that I that I cooked up 
uh josh he dropped the 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 brew the brew habit on me hard <laughs> and i've and i've i've got uh some various ciders that are <laughs> fermenting and some a couple meads and so the first gallon is ready to go so we have some high octane uh apple cider that we that we fermented out here and it's i don't know it, it's basically just apple apple juice from costco plus some brown sugar Plus a little bit of wine yeast, and like three three weeks later, what a tap! I bottled yeah. it up, and we're one we're one week past bottling, and it's respectable. It's not; it doesn't have a harsh bite like you would think. No. Do you want some tasting notes? Hit me, dude. What uh, flavors are you getting? I'm, I'm getting well, solidly uh, tart apple. Yep. Uh, a little bit of alcohol, um, a little yeast, but well, like you said, it's it it certainly is not overpowering. Yeah. Um, this is good. It's it's far more like dry wine and less like sweet apple juice. Yeah, like like a a, a Pinot Grigio kind of wine. Yeah, not it's not sweet. It's not like a, a Riesling or anything like that. Yeah, um, yeah, it's good. Well done. Thanks, dude. And it smells like apples in here. Like it's <laughs> the the smell of this thing. The the nose is the nose on this apple wine. It's pleasant. It's nice. <laughs> It gets better. The first test. The you more, didn't go blind. <laughs> the more I have, the better it smells. Nice. <laughs> well, we'll finish this off, and then after that, Josh brought over what whiskey do you have over there? Uh, that's a little bit uh, left in a bottle of very old Barton. That's the eighty-six proof bottle. Nice. And I've got a bottle of Mellow Corn, which I've never had before, uh, and it's not actual bourbon. It's basically bourbon, except it's aged in uh charred white oak barrels after they've been used for bourbon so this is this is corn liquor uh heaven hill we're on the heaven hill tip here uh but this is another another one of the bottled in bond uh heaven just hill slap some butter on that and call it on a cob <laughs> so <laughs> it, is this just not age what like that's this? no that's the thing it is it, it's it's basically uh I mean, it's the same. It's, it is similar to bourbon, only it's not using the uh, never before used charred white oak barrels. Ah, it's the second time around. Okay. Yeah. So. Got it. That's what we're rocking. And ten, we, ten to fifteen dollar bourbons. And we are rocking it. <laughs> we are open to ideas for another themed liquor night, though. That's true. If anyone has any ideas, uh, hit us up. Let us know. Cool. That's cool. Uh, so that's the that's the stuff we're drinking. How about the things we've been uh, digesting and thinking about? John, you want to lead us off again, dude? Sure thing. Uh, my one thing for this episode is going to be the film Get Out. Nice. Which my wife and I watched recently, and I quite enjoyed it. I was a little surprised that everybody was kind of hyping it up for Best Picture, because I didn't know if I would say it was that good, but it was definitely, it deserved to be nominated, I would say. Not to say that the fish effing movie deserved to win, but... This this one was pretty awesome. So if you haven't seen it, <laughs> it's about a a young black man who goes with his girlfriend who's white to meet her family 
and they're like palatial country estate. And it turns out that things are more sinister than they appear. Yeah. They, they're not so woke as they would come across. No, no. The dad is very much about saying things like I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could. Yeah. My favorite golfer is Tiger Woods. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good, it's a, yeah, it's a good movie. Um, it is a good movie. Yeah. Solid. Um, and so I guess uh, riding the success of that, Jordan Peele is going to do a or or at least be at the helm of a Twilight Zone uh, series. Oh, really? I believe so. Cool. I can get behind yeah. that. I thought he was also doing Lovecraft Country. Yep. yep. He's going to be adapting that too. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm not sure if he's writer, director, producer, or what on that, but yeah, he's he's involved with. That. Have you read that? I've not. I haven't either. I mean, at this point, people should just be lining up to give him a blank check, really. Um, were you guys fans of uh, Key and Peel? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's one sketch in particular where uh, uh, they go troll these uh, 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 like Confederate Civil War reenactors. Do you know that sketch? Uh-huh. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. Get out. Get out. That's a good one, dude. Cool. How about you, my friend Luke? Me? This dude? This guy? Two thumbs? That guy. Right there uh, in the white. My thing that I brought to the board is a big-ass book, and I'm only like, I don't know, a fifth of the way, a sixth of the way into it. Uh, it's Neil Gaiman's American Gods. I'm like a decade, maybe a decade and a half. <laughs> I guess I'm like a decade and a half behind the times with this book. Uh, but I picked it up on a lark the other day at my bookstore and cracked it open and I really do love it. It's it's pretty it's pretty awesome. Uh I'm psyched. I I'm excited I'm excited to see how this this messed up road trip plays out. Yeah, I so here is a a hot take slash <laughs> um confession. I started that book many years ago and got about a hundred pages in and stopped reading it because I didn't like it. And I, I don't, I can't quite put my finger on what it was that I didn't like about it, but someone very, very dear, a, a very dear friend recommended it. And it's someone that, you know, typically our interests are really similar. And when he likes something, I tend to like it too. And uh, so I, I don't, I still don't know what the disconnect was. Um, so I'm going to have to try it again. Maybe it just was not the right time or I wasn't in the right mood or I don't, I don't know. Uh, I do think that the main character, uh, the main character's name shadow, yeah. uh, was a little too on the nose for me. And, and every time I read that name, I was just like, Oh, come on. <laughs> His name is shadow, <laughs> but you know, yeah. it's, it, I know that it's well loved and, and I typically like Neil Gaiman's other materials. Uh, so I need yeah. to give it another shot. I wasn't necessarily on like the hate train against Gaiman or anything, but I've never been just wanting to pick up his stuff just because of uh, a lot of his stuff is funny, and I tend to not necessarily want to go down that road. And the other things just writ large like as far as that statement tend to be really long Mm -hmm. uh and i've stayed away from it because of that and that's not true like actually the the things that i have read of his have been shorter form like short fiction uh short stories Mm -hmm. like short horror stories and i have loved them Mm -hmm. uh so i 
he's he's awesome. He's the bee's knees. And I've just stayed away from his big ass books because I just haven't had the 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 time or the inclination to get into him. But this one, I I have started and I'm I'm loving on it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I need to give it another shot. Have you read American Gods, John? No, I've never read anything by him. Hmm. This will this maybe will... like the first trade paperback of Sandman comics. Okay, how about sixteen o two Marvel sixteen o two? Oh no, yeah, I did read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I forgot about that. So more his comic stuff and less his uh, literary yeah. output. Yeah. Cool. This will scratch your mythology itch, dude. I mean, uh, that's what yeah. it is. Okay. Is Odin in it? <laughs> he is. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I already know that he's in it because okay. that one guy plays him on the TV show. Got it. Swear engine. Spoilers, yeah. everybody, for but, uh, American Gods. <laughs> is that a Spoiler. Uh, I don't no, think it's been so. out for like twenty years, right? Like, <laughs> well, I I suspected that that Mister Wednesday was Odin on the basis of the name Mister uh, Wednesday, and and I, but I didn't want to like I didn't I don't know anything really about the story other than the the old gods are dying and the new gods are rising up. Uh, that's all I know, and so I didn't want to just stake that claim outright until it became pretty apparent. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. You are the last one. I'm the last one. Uh, I'm also the last to get on this train. So there's a show on Netflix that originally uh, it, it it airs on the El Rey network. It's called Lucha Underground. We've talked about it on this show before. And I'm only now just really diving in deep to Lucha Underground. I watched six episodes in a row on Sunday. <laughs> Um, and it is, uh, a wrestling show wherein the workers work really hard, but they also have this, this weird mythology and, and kayfabe that reminds me of 1980s WWF, like, you know, or or early nineties where the undertaker really was a zombie and Papa Shango really was a voodoo priest and um, all of the characters have some some like supernatural power or a science fictiony aspect to them. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. It's it's just a lot of fun. Um, and from somebody who loved wrestling growing up, all into like way into my adult life, um, and only in the last five years or so have I have I really stepped away from wrestling. Getting back into it via Lucha Underground is, is really a lot of fun. So, um, uh, again, I know I'm th- like three years late on this, but if there's anyone out there who likes wrestling, um, check out Lucha Underground. It's on Netflix. Uh, there are two seasons of it. And this is a big popular thing. I believe so. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that it's, uh, well loved cool. in, uh, in wrestling circles. Uh, but I do not have my finger on the pulse of wrestling at all. Uh, I know a lot of people tend to hate on world wrestling entertainment these days. Uh, and a lot of folks tend to get their wrestling from new Japan or Chikara, like these other promotions. And I think Lucha underground is, is one of those promotions that, uh, uh, is well loved and is, you know, becoming sort of somewhat mainstream. Cool. Yeah. You also got to think about what your luchador name would be. Uh, 
it, well, at one point, I think it was going to be El Pollo Loco. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Thanks. You'd wear like a chicken hat. Yeah, I would. What's yours? Uh, I was King Spider. I can't remember how you say it in Spanish, though. I don't know. El Marano Red. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to say. El Mariachi. El, El Macho. Uh, Bandito. Bandito. El Macho Bandito. That's a good one. Or No, 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 no. Un Macho Bandito. Get, get that. Uh, I'm just going to be A. Oh, not the. Not the. I'm going to be one the. of many. And we, we are. <laughs> that's going to be my thing. I am one of many. You don't necessarily know my identity. I'm going to. Yeah, you're wearing the mask. Yeah. <laughs> what I'll do is I'll put I'll put the uh I'll put the uh like the the hanky up uh like cowboy style. Nice. Riding through the dust storm. You're not gonna know who I am. From parts unknown. Aviator shades. Uh <laughs> and uh I would probably wear the Canadian tuxedo. Nice. Denim on uh, denim. Denim on denim with like black t shirt. Or white. Mm-hmm. Depending on time of year, yeah, <laughs> not after Labor Day. You gotta have black after Labor Day <laughs> and some motorcycle boots, like the the you know steel toed. They've got like the the sort of like leather bands over the top kind of thing. Rattlesnake hide, mm, yeah, yeah. Or maybe I would get like even the the cool points, like uh the two brothers on Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Those are like serious cowboy <laughs> boots, though. <laughs> so everybody, email us and let us know what your luchador name would be and what your gimmick would be. Build your own mythology in your head. That's right. Yeah. Would you be like a dapper sort of playboy kind of thing or scary Undertaker sort of vibe? Me? No, I'm wearing a chicken mask. Oh, no, I'm talking to the people of the world, Josh. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> I would be I would be uh, a chicken in a track suit with like like... You sounded uh, like you were going for Mick Foley there a second ago, really. Cactus he Jack. Oh, dude, like Cactus Jack. Hell, dude, I <laughs> I don't know much about wrestling, but I know that I love me some Mick Foley. <laughs> Damn, I yeah. love it. I love it. He's crazy. In the best way, I just want to hug him. Yeah. He's huggable. Like, he would be actually, sidetrack, derail, uh, like, like, you know, if you could have the short list of people to have dinner with, Mick Foley would be like a a, a popular culture person that i think would be a hell of a lot of fun like like uh a cool like go out for pizza with him and like andrew wk i think would be like the coolest thing that would be so many good vibes yeah there would be hugs there would be video games like we would hang out after we're done eating pizza at the the race car game it'd be a party you would have ice you would definitely get ice cream (laughs) it'd be good it would be life affirming yeah that's what we're about here yeah Good tell vibes. Us, tell us your <laughs> name. <laughs> and what's your gimmick and would be? And if you would want to eat dinner with Mick Foley or, or what have you. Dude, I'm sorry. I'm what derailing. pizza would you, you take Mick Foley for? Yeah. That's a great question to ask the people. Mick Foley has uh, sent you a friend request and wants to meet up. Where do you go? <laughs> and what do you do? Yeah. Little Caesars, Papa John's, Pizza Hut. What's your, your fun Local time? chain. Yeah. Yep. Mellow Mushroom. All right, man. You got to cue the music. We got to get out of this real quick. Well, that's three things. <laughs> and we put them together and we call it one thing. I said get us out of there real quick. Get us out of here. I don't feel like that happened very quickly. Play us <laughs> off. I tried, Jack. <laughs> Hit the button. Hit the button. One thing. 
Uh, all right. Cool. Uh, so that's that's a uh, standard front end fun content. <laughs> now we're going. Fun times over. Fun kids. times are over. Now we're getting serious. We're out of the ballroom. We're into our desks. We're sitting down, busting out our little blue notebooks where we're going to scribble down our test answers. And, and, the, and there's an hour deadline, oh. and, and you did not study. <laughs> Welcome to the Chromecast. And you're naked. <laughs> worst dream. This is the worst dream, and it's coming true, and it's all real. Uh, we have a couple of good stories to talk about tonight. I think so. Let's talk about birds first. Birdies. Yeah. Uh, you have an ornith- ornithological interest all of a sudden? I do, yes. Feathers, claws, and such. I'm uh, about that gold, dude. This is originally called Dark Vengeance. Just just a, yeah. a note. I didn't realize that. Claws from the Night, in my opinion, is the more superior title. True. It's, it's also more on the nose. But, a little bit. But I think it works. Both would be great Batman comic book titles as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, really? I said I said on the nose earlier. I might could have said a little too much on the beak. On the beak. Ooh, yeah, you could have. Could okay. have been Talons from the Night. Talons from the Dark. Mm. We have returned to Linkmar. <laughs> yeah. Crazy but things. it's not a happy atmosphere. No. The smoke cr- is thick with fear. Fear. And fear flows like mist through the twisting thoroughfares and mazy alleyways, trickling even to that most intricately curved and crevice-like street where a subtly flickering lantern marked the doorway to the Tavern of the Silver Eel. What kind of fear is it? It's a feminine fear, I guess, at this point. Uh, People in the town have had their jewels snatched, mostly women. They've had their their baubles taken from them. At first, seemingly by magic, nobody understood what was happening. Many slaves and maidens were whipped to the point of death, trying to get confessions out of them because it was assumed it was all an inside job. But one of the victims noticed a flash of, that looked like a bird and then another and then another. And then we get this sort of weird sequence where is it, is she like a famous lady of the night in town? Yeah. yeah she gets robbed She's a and kind of clawed in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. And so that starts out the, uh, the trend of wearing these ornate bird cages on your head, right? All the, all the ladies of Lankmar are stepping out with these luxurious silver wrought bird cages. Dude, it's kind of weird. Heads. It's a weird scene. At this point, like like we're passing. I mean, there's been some weird scenery and some some uh I don't know, like the fashion sense in Lake Mar is a bit is a bit uh ur- urban and chic already like with some of the things that have been established, but this takes it into the realm of almost like weird sex club. To me. Yeah, it's it's very strange. Um, and all of these things seem to coincide with the return of Fawford and the Grey Mouser to Lankmar. They've been missing Don't for justice. some time. Um, but people who frequent the Silver Eel have taken note of their return. Yeah. They say that the birds are free in Lankmar, but the women are caged. And maybe Fawford and the Grey Mouser have something to do with it. Because they're leaving the Silver Eel and somebody notices that... Under Fawford's uh, graciously flowing cloak seems to be something alive, perhaps even the size of a bird. Mm-hmm. And they're also making these suspicious inquiries about a certain jewel that a moneylender named Moolsh has evidently 
procured recently. So and he, they head over to Mulsh's house, and they're kind of they're gonna like step into the middle of heist. This yeah. is that part in the heist film where multiple plans sort of coincide right. sometimes, and you you get to see some weird chicanery because of that. Yeah, they're looking down from a skylight, and they're watching a marital quarrel between Mulsh and his wife, Atya. Yeah, and, what are they arguing about, Luke? Uh, well, so uh. She's uh concerned with his with his money grubbing, right? Yeah. And and he is he seems to be a bit concerned like he's concerned about her, but she feels stifled and almost caged, mm. right? Mm. Um she has a lot of pet birds mm-hmm. in this room. <laughs> um and I don't I wanted to ask you guys, did you think that Liber was trying to trying to put in our heads that Fawford and Grey Mouser were somehow involved with the the birds attacking people. I don't know if that's what he wanted us to believe. I think that he wanted to lay all kinds of little bread trails, right? Because we walk in on this, they see thieves in the curtains. They see all the we see all the birds. That's a weird clue. They have a bird. They're intersecting. Like who's doing all of it. Like he, he's trying to lead you down a lot of different paths. Mm-hmm. So it's labyrinth, labyrinthine, like, uh, some of the other Liberian stories so far. Yeah. We're a little bit Hitchcockian too, with, yeah. with some of the, with some of the yeah. tropes and some of the things that are coming across here. I didn't even think of that. When, when did, when did the birds come out? It was after this, wasn't it? Yeah. This is 51. Well, let's look. Okay. So the birds came out in 1963. So oh, this yeah. is this is a precursor to that. But he's hitting on I mean a lot of the same just general bird anxiety. Bird anxiety, uh you know, a focus on uh the women within the story and sheltered, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. How do you feel about birds? Birds are fascinating, but it uh-huh. depends on the, the bird. Bigger birds like uh like geese. Okay. Are are just uh, they're loathsome. <laughs> I, I find them to be just horrific, and uh, they're aggressive and and they will attack you. So I don't I don't like I don't like them. I don't like geese. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. I mean, birds seem soulless to me. Just <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're beautiful and they they. Uh, just as a as a general statement, they're fascinating animals, but also like they have that almost reptilian aspect. Like they don't have right, the yeah. warm the warm feel when you look at in your puppy dog's eyes, or you look within the eyes of of uh, of a mammal. It's it's a different feeling than when I look in the eyes of a crocodile or a stork. I I mean I look at storks all the time, so I know. That's not true. I don't look at storks. <laughs> why would you think? Why would you think that? I look at storks all the time. <laughs> but uh, what about I have you, a good friend who has um, Melia grisophobia. She's afraid of turkeys, wild turkeys. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. She was she was jogging once, and one jumped out of the shrubs and spurred her real hard. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. We have a lot of wild turkeys in Omaha. And they get in urban centers and do stuff like that sometimes. Wow. Just attack like people? I, we have one at my office sometimes that shows up. Really? Which is, yeah, like deeply so urban. Is it? Less than 10% of the area is green. 
Is it because they're nesting there and they think that you're like going to get in their nest or something? I don't Oh, the attacking part. Yeah, yeah. I think it has something to do with that or they're just being aggressive like a geese. I want you to sort of really get into this turkey's head. <laughs> Profile this I think turkey. It's because they're descended from raptors. Like they got that that spur on the back. It's like the claw that Alan Grant uses in Jurassic Park on that little kid. Yeah. <laughs> it's all it's all related. Yeah. I think that's the the freaky thing about some birds is that they are like Luke said, they're kind of dinosaur like that movement. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Is what I imagine a dinosaur would look like. There is something kind of freaky about them. And they're One dece- of our, oh. my recent National Geographics was all about birds. And they had lots of close up pictures of their eyes and stuff and it's like they have black eyes, glass eyes, like a doll's eyes. Yeah. That, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right, man. They're yeah. I mean, and they're they are deceptive too in their size. Like uh, sure. yeah. Uh, because that wingspan, they, they're light of, 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 of bone structure, but they're, they're quite large. Like once they, they can sort of spread out those wings. So like one of the guys, uh, that I work with, one of the other professors who's an ornithologist, like took a class out the other day and I saw him the next morning. He's like, Hey man, you got to come check this out. And so we went into like one of the labs and he had, they had found a, a, a trumpeter swan that had been presumably hit by a vehicle and was there on the side of the road. And so he's a, he's a wildlife guy. He snagged it and he brought it back to the the lab just to have, but I'd never seen a swan that big. I mean, I've seen like geese, but I've never seen like a swan up close. And this thing was huge. Like it's, it's head was the size of, of seriously my, my arm. Uh, and it was, uh, like I pulled one of the, the, one of the wings out and like a swan has a wingspan. That's, you know, larger than a lot of grown ass adults. If you're if you're a small grown ass adult, it's it's larger than you. It's not necessarily heavier, but it's still intimidating. So that component of it. Like birds are birds are deceptive. And they can get you from above, which is not where we're normally <laughs> right. looking, right? And and where they get you in this story oh, in Lankmar. Way to bring it back, dude. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just, as a point of order, trumpeter swans have a wingspan that can be as much as ten feet wide. Yeah, this this so this one way bigger than a dude. This one was definitely like a two foot wing, though. Like when I filled it out, one wing, one wing. This story, I think, reaffirms why some people might be afraid of birds. It was one of my favorite things: the choice of a villain mm-hmm. in this story, the avian sort of thing that that infuses our story. That was one of my favorite parts. It wouldn't. I don't think we've already had sort of a dragon, snake, lizard, man, right? Right. The Ixian monster. Uh-huh. Uh, we've had some Lovecraftian ray men and fish men. Mm-hmm. Sea had, terrors. We yep. had mice. Mice. Yeah. 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 Rats and mice. Liber definitely so, is one for like the animal monsters. Yeah, he doesn't. <laughs> he seems to not really care much for animals. <laughs> and I really do like the way that Liber creates tension at the beginning of the story uh, by taking these robberies that begin somewhat innocent, right? Like it's not like you're leaving a pie out to cool and someone takes it, but you know, you take your valuable <laughs> necklace off and, and leave it near the window and then suddenly it's gone. Right. And it escalates from there to things coming down out of the trees and grabbing necklaces off of your neck to the the maiming that happens to lesnia the the courtesan one of these birds takes her eyeball out yeah so so i i do like the way that that liber sort of uses 
these birds to build tension because you, you don't know when this is going to happen. And, and they're so fast that it, you know, it just happens out of the clear blue sky, literally. Yeah. So Molsh has Adia in, in a cage, essentially. She's, she's, uh, kept away out of, out of regular interactions and she feels deprived. Right. But yep. Molsh has, a uh, a present for her that's quite sizable and uh he's presenting it to her while our protagonist are, are are watching on right so all of the components that happen here within this portion of the the front end of the story basically the things that relate to the uh the bird that swoops in and steals the the jewel and the following interactions between Fawford and Mouser post jewel swiping i mm-hmm. think is really cool i i love this like a uh, uh thieves at work within Linkmore. that was <laughs> i like seeing these two dudes like working also just as a point of order is mouser's plan to steal it with a fishing pole yeah, yeah. he's he's okay in my mind he's doing like the uh you know the arcade machine with the crane that yeah. like yes. you you use to try and get a stuffed animal. Like he's he's got that sort of up in the air, and and the the crane is descending, and he's trying to grab it. But he also notices that there are some thieves guild members in the room as well, like mm-hmm. hiding behind a curtain. Yeah. So there's Farford and Gray Mouser. There's uh, Stravas, who is the the other thief, um, and. All of these forces are are trying to descend upon this jewel at the same time. Plus, a bird flies in through the sunroof. Let's hear how ah! that. <laughs> that was good, dude. That, that was good. Yes, yeah. you shocked me. You need to drop some of those in. <laughs> uh, cause from the night, and so the uh, uh, I guess the jewel. Is taken by a bird, right. but 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 the good guys have a bird too. That's right. So <laughs> you, the only way to stop a bad guy with a bird <laughs> is to have a oh, good no. guy no, with no, a bird. No, 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 no. Don't even finish that. <laughs> <laughs> the end. I'm You've been proud. listening to the Chromecast. <laughs> I'm sorry for my outburst. It's okay. Fawford unhoods a falcon or an eagle. He has become a falconer and he unleashes his bird. Who's what's his name? Trusco. Kuskra. Kuskra. Kuskra of the step, dude. Yeah, that's right. And unleashes it on this other bird. They tumble a little bit and Kuskra comes away with the jewel, but seems to act a little funny and turns out has been scratched by poisoned talons. And I thought that was the most horrifying thing of all because now these these birds are they really are weapons in in ways that they weren't before and now whatever force is behind this mm-hmm. has a very potent means of of creating terror and causing chaos from the, from the sky from the sky so Kushka dies the jewel is also lost this the bad bird comes back and snatches it back and Fafford and gray mouse are kind of twiddling their thumbs trying to figure out what's going on but they follow it right right 
and they end up at this temple. Always ominous. Yeah, they bust out their grappling hook and they they climb the tower that they saw the bird go to. Uh, there's some good set pieces it's here. Plasmosis so bad. <laughs> but we we do see our heroes separated once again. Yep. And we do see Fafred taken captive once again. Uh-huh. He's scratched lightly by one of the the birds. He's able to suck some of the poison out. Right. And um, is then incapacitated and comes to sitting sort of in a, a chair in this room with... Locked up. Yeah, tied up next to another person with um, uh, an ominous... Vo- or or a, an ominous voice coming from a hidden speaker within this room. We learn that this person who is speaking to Fafred and his captive companion, uh, Stravas, is uh, Tia, who is the incarnation of an ancient bird goddess of Lankmar. Yeah. Who once uh, the, the citizens of Lankmar paid tribute and if they didn't pay tribute then she sent her birds out to maim and disfigure those women yeah um and she is planning to uh rise to power once again and and she has these birds that were the the evidently they come from a line of birds that tia actually used as her soldiers right yeah, an ancient line of uh, of 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 birds here. Attack birds, <laughs> kill birds. I Who love it. Hide in the shadows and sing songs. They can talk. They say, "Jewels, jewels, bright, bright, sparkling ones, shining ones. Ear to tear, eye to peck, cheek to scratch, neck to claw." Yeah, they have two things they like: maiming, Squ- maiming, and, and jewels. jewels. Yes. <laughs> Fofford, he is also, at this point, sort of an unreliable narrator because he's definitely tripping on bird talon venom. He's kind of fading in and out of it. But what he can tell is that there are two falconers who appear to be the priests <laughs> of of Tia, Taya, whatever you want to call her. And one of them is standing next to him, and another one appears and turns out to not be a falconer. It's, of course, the Grey Mouser. Come to say Fofford again. Mouser has Tia at at sword point, right? And he recognizes her. It's 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 not someone that we haven't seen before. In fact, it's it's someone that we have seen. Who is it? It's Count Alucard. Count Alucard. No way to Dracula. Uh, this is Dracula Atia. Backwards. Yeah, this is Atia, and and <laughs> I'm so embarrassed that I didn't pick up on the Atia Tia connection because I. I guess the first time I read through the story, I didn't really commit Atia's name to memory. But the second time I took notes and was like, oh, okay. So I guess depending on if you remember that Atia is the name of the girl with uh, uh, from whom this jewel was originally stolen, you know, you, you maybe can make this connection. But I did not. Well, plus her jewels were stolen. I mean, yeah, frees her of suspicion slightly. Yes. Hmm. Elementary, my dear yes, Johnson. So but, I just... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, it, this, we sort of end with Mouser coming at her 
and he plunges her into the river? Well, she evidently tells the birds to take the gems yeah. somewhere else. And they do so, and yeah, she plunges into the river, but he's kind of later somewhat shaken about what he actually witnessed. Yeah, maybe she flew off harpy style to to live again. Uh, he's not going to say that. He says she fell in the river, right? But that's that's what his eyes saw. But that doesn't stand to reason. Yeah, no, no way that she that she flew. She's at the bottom of the Ohio. Uh, Mouser said to Fafred sometime later, There's a thing I have not told you. When Atia leaped into the halal, it was full moonlight. Yet somehow my eyes lost her as she fell, and I saw no splash whatever, although I peered closely. Then, as I lifted my head, I saw the end of that ragged procession of birds across the moon. Behind them came, I thought, a very much larger bird, flapping strongly. And you think, asked Fafrid, why, I think Atia drowned in the halal, said the mouser, as he took a drink of his wine undoubtedly and tried to forget the horrific thing that he saw. Fortified his soul. What did you think of the story? I think the story is weird. I like it. I like the world building. We didn't talk about it here, uh, but probably my most favorite thing about this story, similar to how we saw... Uh, the, the backstory for how thieves pay sort of like penance or, or, or some level of like tithing towards the, 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 the evil thieve lord undead that rule underneath the city. We get a little bit of like, uh, culture and style <laughs> that sort of sp- like comes out of this, this, uh, these events where, uh, those bird cages that women were wearing around their heads, morph over time into like a, a bit of decoration, like a, like an affectation. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. I, I love that bit of world building. Like this is the story for why, uh, you have the veiled women within the, the cities of Lankmar. Yeah. And I think that's great. I think that's awesome. I also think it's awesome that the people are so weird. The, the bird, <laughs> Acolytes are weird. I mean, it's basically like dudes in leather. <laughs> and, yeah. and she's uh, all weird with her movements and the ways that she's described as a very bird-like countenance and these like triangular face. And she also looks like a child. And she looks like the, that raptorial sort of appearance. And I think maybe like her, her shroud has like the, the, the hands are quite... Are, are larger, like the 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 arms of the gown open up wide. It's just there's a lot of style in this. I feel like if we were to see like a contemporary visual presentation of this, like in a movie or a, or a television show or something, it would be like the hyper stylized and hyper sexy, and I, it just comes across in this this story. It's really weird in terms of just the, the visual notes that it hits. And I like that. I like the, the heist temperature that we're getting here. I mean, I know that almost all Fofford and the gray master stories are thief stories in of themselves, but the, the triple heist intersecting or I guess, yeah, triple heist at, yeah, is thieving from herself at that point that intersects. I really like that part in the avian part 
I don't know. I just thought that maybe something was kind of missing overall from this story. I didn't like the resolution yeah. nearly as much as I have liked some of the others. A little too convenient. And, yeah. Uh, and I felt like we were missing a beat between their arrival in Lankmar and this for some reason. Because uh, in our last story, The Seven Black Priests, we were still on our way back to Lankmar. Am I correct? Yeah, right. but we were in the cold waste. Like we were on the at least the same continent again. I guess I had hoped that this story would be something of a of a trumpeting return to Lankmar, that it would be these two dudes showing back up after being gone for many moons and everybody being very confused and concerned and maybe a reintegration. But rather it was just this like, OK, they're back and they're clearly up to something. What could right. it be? <laughs> yeah, it's business as usual. It's It's almost like, you know, yeah, we went on this crazy year long or more uh adventure and had all these trials and tribulations coming back but hey we're back and and everything's right. back to normal now let's go on a linkmar adventure now yeah we got a fishing pole and an eagle what are we up to huh <laughs> it's crazy uh wild and crazy guys i i liked tia as well luke when we first see her she is a bird in a cage and when we next see her, she is a, a bird goddess. Like, she's she's liberated and come into her own. And we find out she was never actually a prisoner anyway. She she was the the cause of all this. She was the orchestrator of the, the plot. Yeah. Um, and so she has agency. She doesn't die. She li- she, she gets away like a, a Batman villain, I yeah. guess. Um, <laughs> and, you know, clearly is, is going to survive to threaten the people of Linkmar again someday. Uh, and I like that. I think that's, that's cool in a way that some of the other antagonists sort of fall by the wayside. But like you said, the thieves guild elder gods, the old gods of the thieves guild are there. Tia is there. Mm-hmm. Like all of these potential plot threads could, you know, rear their heads again in the future. Yeah. She's, uh, she's not necessarily ever shown to be vulnerable. But she's shown to be uh, sort of like worried over yeah. by by her husband, and I like the fact that she seems like such a such a weak little bird, but in actuality, she's she's not. She's <laughs> she's yeah. something much much greater. That's that's pretty scary. I was I was thinking about birds in mythology and bird gods and goddesses, and I was wondering if you guys knew of any that that could have served. As inspiration for Tia, uh, wouldn't we be talking about like Isis and Osiris? And I have Egyptians? no idea. I don't know. I I just it's something I've been puzzling over and thinking about today, and I have no answers. Um, I think that, and I maybe I get this from the Mignola comics, but uh, Hecate, mm-hmm. I think she has some association with birds, maybe owls. Um, but she's Athena not, has owls. Yeah. Um, so I, I was just wondering if, if there were some bird goddess, Hang on one sec. okay. <laughs> if, if there was some bird goddess from some, uh, cultures mythology that I just didn't know about. Well, Thoth is got an Ibis head. Okay. But I think he's a man. Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought that there was an Egyptian goddess with a bird head. Uh, there might be. 
but I don't know my Egyptian myths nearly as well as, as some of the other cultures. Yeah, it's a weak spot. Yeah. But we're going to talk about mythology again here pretty quick in this next story. So I wonder what folks might think of uh, Atia slash Tia and how she relates to the presentation of other female characters in Liber stories. Because we haven't seen all that many, right? right? Uh, Ivrian and Valana. And we know what happened to them. And we're going to revisit them in just a bit as well. So thumbs up. Yeah, absolutely. It's not necessarily the best plotted story. I think I think there's some 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 issues there, but as far as my opinion of set pieces and overall presentation and cool ideas, it's a it's one that's good. All right. So next up, the price of pain ease. So I have that this is a story original to the uh, the collection that we're reading from, uh, and on top of that, I guess we can say it was written in 1970, concurrent with maybe with the uh, uh, Ilmet and Lankmar, as well as the Circle Curse. So this is another one of those stories that kind of solidifies the uh, the overall story cycle and sets a chronology in place. Yeah, so you could go from Ilmet and Lankmar to the circle curse to price of panties. I like this story. I love this writing style. We get, I mean, complete, like it just hurts your head. If you try to follow sentence structure, as opposed to just like floating along with the story as Liber unfolds it, like he's just, He's a master of, of the words. I, I love it. <laughs> I, well, I told Ashley that I f- felt like, like I kept laughing while I was reading this one. And uh, she asked me what I was reading. So I told her and I told her about the plot. And I said, you know, uh, they've stolen a house. And it's not as though they've moved in and evicted the owners. No, they, they have hired people to pick up a house and move it across town and put it down on the site where they used to live uh, with uh, Ivrian and Milana, right? Uh, or at least that's where the, the, the girls died. Yeah. Um, and now uh, Grey Mouser is just taking luxurious baths and Fofrit is learning uh, languages. And it's just so strange. It's so strange that, that this is what they're doing in this story. <laughs> Yeah, the setup is sort of like they've never lived together. They're best friends. They've traveled the world literally with one another after such and such adventure in this other one. But now they're going to be roommates. And of course, it can't just be like a normal roommate story. It has to be that they literally pick a house up with a bunch of dudes that they pay in wine and they move it to the ghost spot and set it down. And they just they, they have a great time. They take lots of baths and read lots of books. But all is not well in the new apartment. They start to feel things. They start to see things. They don't tell each other about it, but it's clear that they're being haunted. A haunting of Linkmar. Yeah. Uh, they can't call the Ghostbusters because it's eons too early for that. Uh, so they go and talk to witches and such. <laughs> but don't tell each other about it. You can't tell your best bro that you see your dead girlfriend floating around in your stolen apartment room. <laughs> well, and and you bring up a, a, a good point that I think is interesting, and that is, 
in the other Fawford and Great Mouser stories, we have this great banter and dialogue between the two characters. But in this one, it's largely separate and they don't really speak to each other very much. No, which becomes very symbolic later on in the story, not to like spoil it or jump ahead or anything, but they, they're supposed to fight each other. The whole setup is building towards them as, as enemies, as fighters, as Superman and Batman in Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. So I think that that this is all very indicative of that, that they're slowly being worked apart. We're dealing in the end with great magic users who maybe set them up for this. I don't, I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, Did, Nimgobble and uh, Shilba? You know, the Shilba. other one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the, the two magic users completely set all of this up, I think. For their like own. Like they brought the ghost back and everything? I th- I think that, yes, I think that the the magic users conjured these images to cause Fawford and Grey Mouser to seek them out. So that they could send them on their quest uh, to get the the mask of death. I'm into that. What did you think, Luke? Did you think that uh, Ningobble and Shilba were involved with the initiation of the plot, yeah. or do you think they were just taking advantage? No, I think I think those two wizards are. I think I think they're onions, and I think there's layers to them. Uh, I think superficially they're scary wizards, but as you pull things apart, you also see that they are more powerful than than anything should be, and they're almost godlike. But then you peel another layer off, and you see how petty they are, and how uh, flighty they are with their sort of their day-to-day actions and the things that they're sort of involving Fawford and Mouser in. I think all of that is a pretty cool commentary on uh, gods and power. Like, I think what what Liber's getting at there is pretty interesting in terms of those two beings actually being a quite, uh, being quite petty and having very little beyond their, their own sort of, like, desires at play i think that's i think that's uh i think that's what he's going for there i loved shielba's dialogue um (laughs) so mouser shows up and he just stands there and waits and waits and waits and says you know what's what's going on you you trickster and um shielba doesn't respond until mouser says look i'll do anything you want yeah and then shielba's like oh okay um, unloads, right? Yeah. Uh, will you faithfully serve me as long as you live? Do my every lawful command. On my part, I promise not to call on you more than once a year, or at most twice, nor demand more than three moons out of thirteen of your time. You must swear to me by Fawford's bones and on your own that you will use any stratagem, no matter how shameful and degrading, to get me the mask of death from the Shadowland, and that, too, you will slay any being who seeks to thwart you, whether it be your unknown mother or the great God himself. And once Mouser says, I promise, this is the part that I, I, I think is so cool. Uh, Shielba says, very well, keep the horse, ride it east past Ilthmar, the city of ghouls, the sea of monsters, and the parched mountains, until you come to the Shadowland. There, search out the blue flame, 
and from the seat of the throne before it, fetch me the mask of death, or snatch it off death's face if he's at home. By the way, in the Shadowland you will find your Ivrian. In particular, beware a certain Duke Danius, whose garden house you recently purloined, not altogether by chance, and whose death library I imagine you have discovered and perused. This Danius person fears death more than any creature as ever in history, as recorded or recollected by man, demon, or god, and he is planning a foray into the Shadowland with no less a purpose than to slay death himself, or herself, or itself, for there even my knowledge stops, and destroy all death's possessions, including the mask you promised to procure me. Now, do my errand. That is all. Not that I've thought about any of this at all. Like, that's the that's the statement there. Yeah. This right. is all very much... It's an info this dump. This is extemporaneous. Yeah. <laughs> it's, this is what I've had in the works. And and it's it's what Shilba wants and not why Shilba wants it. So th- there certainly is this authoritarian relationship, right? Like, obviously, Shilba's powerful. Right. Um, And... It, this is no small matter that Shielba is asking Mouser to do, like go into the the afterlife essentially and seek out death and steal his mask. And by the way, there's somebody who is planning to go kill death that you might encounter. It's it's a lot. I love it. I I, I love it because this story, I think, like many of the other Fawford and Great Mouser stories, has shades of mythology in it. In particular, yeah. all of the stories that, that you've ever read about heroes going down into the underworld for whatever reason, right? Orpheus going into uh, Hades to find his, his dead love. Uh, Eurydice? Uh, Eurydice. Um, or Theseus going to, to fetch Persephone. Or... Um, Hercules to beat up Cerebus. Right. Or uh, <laughs> who goes after Balder, John? Do you uh, remember who saves Balder? I don't. I don't. But in I Walter know- Simonson's version, it's Thor. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I like or, what you're, or, you're picking up on there, though. Yeah. Or, or Gilgamesh going to meet Utna Pishtim, right, to uh, uh, learn about the secrets of immortality. Like, this, this falls in line with so many stories where the hero has to go to the underworld for some reason to either fetch something or, or deal with some, uh, issue. Right. To bring the, the elixir of life, like to bring their, their bay back yeah. to life. Something's got to come back. Their bay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. On the other side of the coin here though, we have, uh, Fawford, Talking to Mouser's godlike counterpart, this was something that I dug, that Mouser ends up with the quiet god, mm-hmm. and Fawford ends up with the talkative one, right. which is sort of uh, evocative of who they hang out with in real life. Right. That, right. that Nim Gobble is much more the Mouser-esque of the two wizards here, and he's getting the same marching orders. So they're on parallel journeys, literally traveling parallel on the world until they meet at the Shadowlands, which just happens to be Josh's favorite Daredevil story plot line. (laughs) I knew, I knew that that was going to come up somehow. And, uh, for the record, Shadowland is the Daredevil story that made me stop reading comics. And I still, that was like, what, six years ago. I still haven't really gone back. Yeah. It, 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 it hurt me. 
it it woke, to bring it, up. it woke me up to certain things that I don't like about comics. <laughs> but let's not let's. That's for a different. That's for uh, a podcast that we do. A rant later when I've had more bourbon. They're taking parallel, sort of perpendicular paths, and they end up in the Shadowlands together. And it, I mean, a series of events occur. I don't know if we want to belabor all of them, but eventually they get to the final level and they face one another. Yeah. And it becomes to... very clear that, that everything has led to this point where they're going to fight one another. The big thing that happens when they get to the shadow lands and into death's realm is that each meets the ghost of the woman that they love that has been haunting them. And how does that go for them? Luke? <laughs> not well, <laughs> they're still not like alive and tangible. They're kind of saying like, like, this is a story that Liber is saying a lot. He's saying a lot about gods. He's saying a lot about death. And he says a lot about, you know, damned nature of people. Uh, but they, they are, they basically give the requisite information that's needed. And I like the way that Ivrian sort of, sort of lays it out where she talks about, get out of here, you big booby, right? If you do die, by the way, and join me in the Shadowlands, I'll spit in your face. Never speak you a single word and never once share your black mossy bed. That's what death is like. <laughs> I, I like that this story showcases and reminds us again of, you know, we only saw Ivrian and Velana briefly. And here we get this reaffirmation of what the relationships were like. You know, um, Ivrian is, uh, uh, very sort of, uh, soft spoken compared to Velana. Velana right. has this hard edge about her. Yeah. And I like that it's, I mean, there's types, right? There's stereotypes that we're dealing with here too. But if we know Fawford's backstory, he's, he's had, strong women like throughout his life like he comes from a clan that has this matriarchal structure and his his mom was uh was the leader of the clan like it, it just absolutely fits with their types right yes yeah. ivrian is a, a lady of the court ca yep. capital l lady and, and, and mouser likes to feel that he's able to to be the provisioner right like yeah. when he was providing for her it's not that far from how atia was treated by uh by her her slovenly sort of husband yeah yeah exactly uh but I, despite the tone differences the message is pretty much the same don't die because <laughs> there's nothing waiting for you on yeah. the other side i'm not waiting for, i don't want you here yeah if you're alive you should continue to be that way dude this is this is some strong ass statements here yeah, I, I think I, so yeah i feel like this is liber really talking like this is his voice like this is his philosophy coming through here. Mm -hmm. And so after these encounters, we end up at the throne of death before the blue flame. Hey, death's not home. Yeah. Lucky pole, right? Luckily. <laughs> so there's the mask. It's on the throne. Fafrid and gray mouse are arrived at roughly the same time as fate would have it. And they both draw weapons. All you have to do is kill your best friend. <laughs> and they're both required by oath to do so. 
one thing that I think is cool, one of the one of the things that stood out to me in in Liber fashion, there's all of this uh labyrinthine language that paints pictures of things. The mask itself is very plainly described. Mm-hmm. There's there's nothing spelled out about it other than like big eye holes, I think. Uh it struck me as odd that we didn't get descriptions beyond it being a mask. Yeah. It says it's it's a shining black mask, full faced with wide open eye holes. That's that is like all we get about it. And we get like the most specific georeference points for where the where they move that stupid house. Like like <laughs> right. like like he goes to at at length we get descriptions of that portion of the story but here it's the broadest of strokes and as the story comes to its conclusion with what happens with death and what happens uh with the two like necro wizards whatever we want to call ningobble and and shilva like like they it it plays out it unspools in like really broad mythological strokes right like the story that's told here is less intimate. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of like, that's, that's more of the, like those are conscious storytelling devices that Liber's using. It's Liber playing with these notions of what it is to be alive and what it is to die and what it is to live with guilt and what it is to let that guilt go. And, and all of these really complex philosophical issues uh, are here in the story. Yeah. And so I guess let's let's very quickly cover the the ending of the story here. We we have this mask and Fawford and Grey Mouse are about to duke it out when uh almost as if he is a Deus ex machina. Mm-hmm. Um what's his name Darius? Danaeus. Danaeus right. shows up, uh swings a sword, chops the mask neatly in half. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, and seems to be a formidable opponent that Fawford and Grey Mouse are even together may not be able to best. But luckily, death comes home right at this moment and steals the the living essence from uh, Danaeus. Yeah. And Fawford and Grey Mouse have had a run in with death before. They know what this is. They get the heck out of there. They yeah. each they each grab a half of the mask. And they go back to their uh, patron wizards. Is there any statement there about how Danaeus takes it? Death, that is? Essentially, that it takes 17 heartbeats for Fafur, 21 for Grey Mouser, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Danaeuses. Yeah. yeah. So, so slowly, painfully, agonizingly. Well, But he's terrified. I guess what I'm getting at is Danaeus, like... We didn't talk about the the sexy pictures <laughs> in the picture books. Oh, that that's right. I jotted that down. Like like Danaeus has a hard on for like sex and death. Like those are his those are his jams. And so he has these libraries within the the house that they stole. And I think it's just it it's the trope of uh you know someone that's infatuated with death or infatuated with the occult and then truly faces what it is. And it's like something far more horrible than what they thought that they were getting themselves into. And this dude, it unspools and like, I, you don't want to face that. And he does like, but clearly he's been obsessing and thinking about it. And I guess I'm making maybe a couple steps on the basis of the, 
the Fawford and Grey Mouse are comic books, the Dark Horse books, uh, and the way that Mignola presents the the sexy pictures in the books mm-hmm. <laughs> is maybe a bit more sexy, but Liber goes to ex- goes to like he mentions the the erotic nature of the content in those libraries and the the focus on on death as the the occult like hidden library too. So are you saying that Danius or Danaeus is he uh, of the same type as Frank from Hellraiser? Yeah, I, I I that's that I mean that was my impression. Like he's he's searching for like the the ultimate orgasm or the the ultimate high, like it's something that's that he's going after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's absolutely how I read this story. So he would do the uh the lament configuration yeah. and summon the uh the Cenobites. <laughs> I, I like so. that. That hadn't that hadn't occurred to me. That's cool. All I could think whenever I read Danaeus's name is Danaeus Plexippus or the monarch butterfly, who is also named after a mythological king named Danaeus. It's spelled a little differently, but he's a mythical king of Egypt who I think he had, he had uh, 50 daughters. So maybe Luke is onto something with this pursuit of sex and death and the ultimate orgasm. <laughs> Maybe. Dude, it's the death wish, and I mean, we're getting Freudian. <laughs> well, well, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm not certain what the word is, but isn't the word for orgasm in French yeah, the like little, little death. death? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're almost like touching the void out there. <laughs> well, we're, well, the gate is open and we're, we're at the precipice. <laughs> We're just soaking it in. This is the apotheosis of of, of uh, us becoming gods, dude. <laughs> I turned back. the The I'm plane really is flying away. What, <laughs> the mountains. I'm in really the distance. intrigued by what Luke had said earlier about the mask, about it being very formless or shapeless, and I wonder if that's because uh, our our buddy is tapping into that universal feel of death. Like death can't be described by one perspective because it appears differently in all cultures so maybe even Fawford and the gray mouser are looking upon the mask and seeing different things Mm, i like that yeah i mean my my impression when i read it was like hmm that's that's pretty broad strokes i guess it's like it's up to you to sort of fill in the 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 paint by numbers here with mm-hmm. whatever colors you want to put on the page. That's the way that I took it, and so maybe it's even that for the characters that we're that we're seeing here. But think mm-hmm. about think about the the last story that dealt directly with death, um, which was the um, oh, what was the story called? The Bleak Shore. Yeah, the Bleak Shore. So think about the Bleak Shore and the way Fawford and Grey Mouser sort of did not really interact with one another during that whole story. Right. And then think about this story that also deals directly with death and the lack of interaction. <clears throat> and I want to read to you a, a quick paragraph from the essay Fawford and me that Fritz Leiber wrote um, in uh, 1974. This is his commentary about the earlier um uh, iteration of this 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 uh, short essay. He says, In the past five years, I published only four new short tales of, of Fawford and Grey Mouser, 
all close brushes with death, who in Naewon dwells in a darkly attractive country called the Shadowland. My dear wife, Jonquil, died September 2nd, 1969. But in the last four months, they've come to life again with a bang. Under the thumbs of the gods, along short, the frost monstream, along Novelette, and of course, trapped in the sea of stars, where Naewon suddenly gets a su- southern hemisphere. Truly, as I wrote 12 years ago, there's nothing like having a couple of lively characters who are good, familiar friends for keeping a rider alive. And so I wonder in those other stories, I mean, the two that we've read so far that deal with death, our heroes, maybe they're not mute, but they, they have this almost reverent uh, silence about them. And they're isolated from the other person that keeps them alive. Yeah. So I, I do kind of wonder, you know, I, I don't really wonder. I think it's evident that that these stories that deal with death include uh, some of Liber's opinions and thoughts and, 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 you know, show him kind of working out these complicated rela- uh, relationships and these complicated thoughts pertaining to death. So I came into this discussion really liking this story, but as we're unspooling this, I'm I'm loving this story. Like this the the things that we're hitting on here really uh are resonating with me and making like this is this is becoming my my most favorite discussion that we've had. Just in the like the final beats of the story and the way that it plays out, it's a it's that darkly like optimistic sort of turn of phrasing here and it seems to be indicative of of Liber's of Liber's life like you're talking about here like that's that's a there's a lot of baggage that he's carrying into writing material at this point in his life I did think that there was this weird beat at the end of the story where there the paragraph says after Shilba and Ningobble have burned the house to the ground that they've been living in, it says, which was probably all to the good, since the whole idea of the two heroes dwelling in a house behind the silver eel, right in the midst of the graveyard of their great beloveds, had undoubtedly been most morbid from the start. Like, it's this almost introspective awareness of, like, this was this was a gross idea that I had, and I wrote a whole story about it, and I, I gotta write my way out of it. Why do you think... I don't know. I, why do you think that that Liber had them steal this house and put it where they put it, like on the, I think that the he, death I mean, side based of on their what beloved? You just read he he was reckoning with something himself, and he kind of worked it out through his heroes by literally having them live merrily in the graveyard of the atoms of the two most beloved women in their life, mm-hmm. most beloved people aside from each other. And at the end, it can't go on that way. Like, it can't be... And then the ghosts were exercised, and now that's where they live. Like, that couldn't be the end of this story. The house is almost symbolic of, like, burning down... Yeah. The past, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, like they are... I mean, they're, they're letting go of the past, and that was something that Josh was alluding to earlier. They're... The way this ends is like the uh, 
oh, you rapscallion, you, you're not gonna like get away from your true nature. Yeah. Uh, they, they've, they're starting fresh. Like we could almost, I know we're reading Bizarre of the Bizarre next week, but this is almost a way that you could read everything up as a prologue, right? Like to set these, these characters up for all of the, like, the major ev- adventures that are going to play out. Like, this is them resolving the, their things. It, yeah. Yeah. And, it, it's even almost, it's not just the past, it's the possible futures. They have to mourn the life that could have been, and the house is almost like a symbol of of marital bliss, like they could have had with mm-hmm. with Ivrain or, or whoever, and that they kind of lived out together for a few days before ghosts showed up to remind them that, hey, everything's all shot to hell (laughs) well i think that they did it intentionally i think that you know the the events of ilmed and lankmar happen and then the circle curse happens and they leave lankmar because they they can't get away from their uh these visions of their their loved ones yeah this is them breaking the circle curse yeah yeah like even when they come back to lankmar uh, death sends them on on a, a that that Gaius that quest that that sends them to the bleak shore and then ever since then we've been trying to get back to Lankmar and now that we finally have and things have settled down we we have to deal with this unfinished business and and we have to deal with the guilt that comes with the death of Ivrian and Valana like th- this, this is, is their version of therapy well it's it's heavy like this is their this is them desperately seeking closure. Yeah. And so, do you know, were Ivrian and Velana actual ghosts at the front end of the story? You know, they were seeing them sort of in their day-to-day. They were living basically on the on the grounds where they they were. The thing that that I as I was as I was reading this, I was thinking about are they literal ghosts or are they figurative ghosts? You know, and and that's apart from the two wizards setting up the story. Like, they can be setting up the story knowing the emotional state of these two protagonists, or they can be wizards setting up the story on the basis of, hey, there's ghosts over there and I'm going to make use of them, or hey, I'm putting those ghosts in that place. But regardless, the story works that these two protagonists are are working through their issues, and because of that... The two wizards are like, hey, I'm able to work towards my own selfish means. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a number of ways to read the the story, but I also think that that no matter how you read it, this this is a parable about living with guilt, recognizing that guilt, dealing with the guilt, and moving past it. And being in servitude to those bastards, right. Shilba and Ningobble. Right. Who who are bastards, but, I mean, do you guys like them? Because I like oh, them. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're likable sons of bitches. Like, that's, and I, I guess here we get the statements they're referred to in the masculine sense, I think. Mm-hmm. So, so we, we, we can, we can take the, the Liberian stance that, uh, of that, but those pronouns, yeah, those pronouns, but uh, yeah, I mean they're <laughs> they're they're great uh, black white 
heads tails comparisons as as John made to to Fawford and Mouser. I, I love the duality that we see in these stories. I what, love that shit. What about <laughs> <laughs> I, I do too. I find that shit fascinating. <laughs> what about this last paragraph? What Valana and Ivrian thought of all this in their eternal dwelling in the Shadowland is entirely their business and that of death, on whose horrid visage they could now look with no fear whatsoever. Like, I think that's awesome. I <laughs> think, like, like, truly awesome. What What is at the heart of that? Like, what that to me, that comes almost out of nowhere like that's that's a cool way to end the story but why is it that our final pov in the story is that of ivrian and valana i i guess i could take sort of a cynical look at it and say if we don't get this and and valana and ivrian are are dead and so it doesn't really matter what they think about fawford betting a new person or, or two new people yeah. and the okay. gray mouse are going after, it would be still hanging over their head. Like we need this closure. They need this closure. We as the reader need this closure that they're free to go on adventures. Now, like this chapter of their life is closed. Yeah. B- both, both, uh, Fawford and gray mouse and every and in Valana in the shadowlands. Right. It's, it has little to do with Valana and Ivrian. It has more to do with Fawford and Grey Mouser. That so, they are prepared to move beyond these two young loves that they had. Okay. And go on more adventures. And if we don't get that message, all of this still seems sort of creepy. Like, oh, and then they sexed some new babes because they exercised the ghost. So we need this sort of like final blessing almost of I death. See. and. So, so you think that, or, or what I'm hearing at least is that this actually isn't from the perspective of Ivory and Valana. It's from the perspective of Fawford and Gray Mouser. And they're saying, oh, we've moved on. And also the shades of our former loves, they've moved on as well. Well, they're we've saying they can't worry on. about it. Yeah. Okay. I, I think Valana it's, I think it's that. Dead. Yeah. They, Whatever they think of all this, it can't matter to us anymore. And at no point did we know their side of the story. Like the, yeah, the perspectives that we were getting were our two protagonists, and and very much it was their story. And so I, I think that to some degree we're getting Liber saying that we we don't true we don't know what's on the other side right right that's, that's one statement that he's making and the other statement is that there's no time like the present you know you know we're going to live in this very uh concrete minute to minute for like existence that Fawford and Mouser like inhabit just by their very nature and the perspective and the point of view that we've been getting is only through their eyes. So, mm-hmm. so that's, that's what we're looking. I don't know. I feel like I'm falling apart here with this discussion or like with this, with this thought, but I don't even feel like we have their side of the story. If reading Volanis. Right. Side. Yes. Okay. I was just wondering, I, yeah. I think it's interesting that, that this ends. It, it could have ended with the paragraph before that. Right. 
I think this is an, a more liberating statement, though. Like, these guys are truly uh, not afraid of death, right? They face death, and they've they've come to terms with loss, like, in the most absolute true sense. Like, they can't... They can't lose anymore. Yeah. These dudes have, like, thrown it all. They have lost it all. And they can't worry about what Ivory and Valana think anymore. Right. Like, they, they've, they finally realize, I guess, that, that this is the life they have. And, and the, the words that have at least come out of the ghosts of, of their mouths, of, of Ivory and Valana, is that, you know, Carpe Dam. Right. We don't, there, there's nothing more. Like, we are not going to hold each other anymore on, like, in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, that those embraces are gone. So you best be, you know, hugging while you can. Well, the, we had our time. Yeah. Live now and, and drink your wine. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes, right? Like, like, uh, do all the meaningless things that life has to offer because yeah. you can now, but later you can't. Yeah. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Some heady, heady material. Dude. Whatever's throwing at us. We've got to live while we can enjoy the, the stinging taste of wine on our palate and, and the, the burning <laughs> sensation of bourbon and the, <laughs> the, uh, sort of bittersweet notes that Fritz Leiber leaves us. In his writing. You guys had some wine tonight. That's true. And bourbon. And whiskeys. Yeah. We've had some whiskey, John. <laughs> I'm <What>? sorry, John. <laughs> uh, so I think it's a, a rousing uh, thumbs up from the Chromecast Absolutely. on this story. I mean, there's <laughs> one of the other comments. I don't, I don't even know how, like... We used the term fridging when we first brought up the two motivators for uh, Fawford and Mouser. Right. I don't know what this story adds. Like, I mean, I think this story adds a lot. We've talked about it. But I don't know if this is a good or a bad way of exiting Ivrian and Valana, like, stage left. Like, right. If, if this is the the clean i think this is a clean way to do it and i think it holds some poetic consequence uh and i think it it provides a clean slate and for all of those reasons i really like the story but i don't i haven't thought hard enough about what it means in the context of like how those two characters were treated i do like that they've ultimately like done more than say like oh have to like try to uh avenge my death they're basically saying screw you bro like it's the the story and my role in it is done and you're not gonna do anything that's gonna gonna impact my fate i I like those those statements i think that's fairly badass uh from from those ghosts whether (laughs) whether or not that's the the necro wizards or whatever or or them i think we got to take it that it's the the actual spirits of Ivrian and Valana. But uh I think that's I think that's cool beans. <laughs> Give it a, a thumbs that's cool beans, man. That's you're doing the, like Bob, the Bob Dole slash Bill Clinton like <laughs> you're holding a pencil but you're also giving a thumbs up. <laughs> I I like how this leaves those characters 
And I like how it leaves Fawford and Mouser. And I guess I like how it leaves uh, the, like, uh, Ningaba and Shilba. Like, they're, they're buttholes, and we're going to see more of them. I guess at this point, we're probably, they're going to become more central motivators within the stories. And we're ending the, the season next next episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. I think it's cool that the uh, the authority figures in this, uh, they don't get what they want. They, they do in a sense, but they don't overall. Yeah. And, and I guess I think that is uh, pretty cool in, you know, in the anarchist side of my uh, personality. <laughs> and I do feel like they're fairly childlike in their motivation in the way that like some of the, the some of the language library uses too. Uh, they are pretty uh, self-motivated. I mean, entirely, I guess. We haven't seen them do anything not not beyond that. So this is a, a heady Chromecast, I guess. But I guess the moral of the story is enjoy your life. I like these leisure times. Yeah. With you guys. I I love them. I live for them, in fact. We hope that you all do, too. <laughs> we do. That's true. We're going to bring it. We're going to bring it down with that. We all like this story. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of thinking. Uh you know, at this point, uh, can't say too much more. No, I think we've done it. All right. We'll, uh, we'll wrap it up here. Uh, Josh will shortly tell us where you can, where you can find us on the inner wolves. Uh, next story, the last story of the season, <clears throat> the bizarre, the bizarre, 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 bizarre. Uh, it's the bizarre of the bizarre. Mm-hmm. That's the last story we're covering for this season. And then after that, we'll have some sort of retrospective. That's what we got in the cooker. That's what's coming up. Um, but we do have some feedback. Ooh. So let's turn to the email. John, do you have any uh, feedback slash email uh, sound effects you want to deliver? It's mailbag. It's the mailbag. Come and join Josh as he reads the mail. <laughs> We have an email from Douglas who says, Hey guys, I'm listening to some of your archived Chromecast episodes. And uh, uh, for the record, you guys can listen to those on the Chromecast.blogspot.com or on archive.org. Just search the Chromecast. He says, Currently I'm on the Dark Man episode, which I really enjoyed. I realize I'm somewhat late here, but I have a few comments I wanted to make. Number one. The word dub, D-U-B-H, is indeed Gaelic, and it does mean dark or black. But in Gaelic, it is pronounced do, as in dude, rather than dub, as in dubstep. Number two, the son of Ishmael refers to the biblical story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, who becomes the founding father of the Israelite, later called Jewish people. Abraham is promised by God that he will become the patriarch of a great nation, who will produce as many descendants as there are stars in the night sky. Abraham believes God, and his belief in this promise is considered to be the definitive archetype of faith in a Judeo-Christian understanding, as God considers trusting in his promises as true righteousness. However, as the years go by and Abraham's wife Sarah does not conceive, and indeed passes beyond the years where she can conceive, Sarah wonders if perhaps they ought to bring about God's promise themselves in their own power. As such, Sarah gives Abraham her Egyptian slave Hagar 
to have sex with. He does, and Hagar gives birth to a child called Ishmael, who Abraham considers his heir and the fulfillment of God's promise. Later, however, God's original promise does come true, and Sarah finds herself with child, even though she is beyond the age of childbearing. Her child, Isaac, is born, and there develops a bitter rivalry between the child of the promise, uh, Isaac, and the child of the flesh, Ishmael. Eventually, Abraham and Sarah cast Hagar and Ishmael out of their camp, and they're forced to survive on their own with no protection. They are likely to die in the desert, but God protects them and provides them with food and water. He then provides to Ishmael, or promises to Ishmael, that he too will become a great nation, the Ishmaelites. In the Judeo-Christian narrative, these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and their mothers, Sarah and Hagar, are symbolically contrasted to show the difference between that of man taking power into his own hands to achieve his goals according to his own schemes, or trusting in God to fulfill his promises, the way of faith. I suspect the phrase, a son of Ishmael, in the context of Howard's story, means that kin who are outcast from the tribe are left with nothing and forced to survive on their own and expect help or kindness from nobody. I'm glad to have that mystery cleared up. I think that makes a lot of sense, and it makes sense in terms of the stories that we were reading. So thanks for telling us about that. Yeah. Uh, nice to hear from a biblical scholar. That's a deep like. dive, yeah. Yeah, that is awesome. Thanks, Douglas. That's That's great. So everybody go back and listen to the Dark Man episode from uh, the, the Bran McMoran season, The Lost Road. Then you'll get a sense of what Sons of Ishmael refers to. Cool. Yeah, we'll we're be, doing. We'll be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Call me Ishmael. Uh, okay. Mailbag in it. Uh, looks, up, looks like next we've got an email from Nils, right? Yep. Yeah. Nils. Uh, so Nils has, has commented on the show and we've had some correspondence with him in the past. Uh, he brings us, uh, brings up the point that there is a dungeon crawl classic, uh, RPG. Uh, that's a, that's a thing we've talked about. We've talked about DCC before, but they recently had a Kickstarter for some Lankmar subs, uh, supplements. Those are forthcoming. There's, there's a lot of, Lankmar RPG specific materials that you can look towards with uh, mm-hmm. DCC's material. And so specifically uh, one of the people involved with that, Michael Curtis visited Liber's uh, Lankmar library in Houston. And there's a, there's a, a more lengthy uh, bit of information about that. And this is something that I've seen uh, across across a couple of different venues here, but, mm-hmm. but just realize that there are contemporary DCC, uh, Lankmar materials that are going to be coming out. And so there's a lot of, I, I would guess like we'll be able to jump into some stories involving the, the elder gods of the thieves guild or mm-hmm. Tiha or, or any of that kind of stuff. Like this is a cool, a cool setting. Obviously the stuff we read today, you could easily drop, an adventure in post Claws from the Night. Yeah. Um, so real quick, go check out, if you haven't already, the Appendix N podcast yeah. and Sanctum Secorum. Both of those shows uh, are, are going to provide some inspiration in, in terms of how to work these tropes into your tabletop games. Some Inspirato? Inspirato. You can't manufacture Inspirato. You got to take it where you get it. Yep, you got to find it. <laughs> It finds you. <laughs> um, but 
uh, yeah, uh, I think it would be a really cool RPG game, a one shot or, or a couple night, three night uh, session to be members of the Thieves Guild of Linkmar who heard that uh, the bird goddess is back and she sent her jewels back to the ancient mountain stronghold of Tia and you have to yeah. break in there. Yeah, you have to break in there and steal that stuff, man. That that would that's that's a instant adventure hook and that's, you know, that would be a really fun night or or a few nights of of gaming. Yeah. Those jewels really tied together, room together, didn't they, dude? <laughs> and and this guy peed on them. Uh so thanks Nils for that email. Uh we have an email from Pat Lamb who says Chromecastians just discovered your podcast from your guest appearance on Blurry Photos. It's true. Hooray! Yeah. So thanks to uh, David Flora for letting us uh, invade their podcast and and uh, putting up with our shenanigans. He says, I'm only halfway th- into the first season and I'm addicted to the evolution of the series. From how you all discovered Conan through other media sources and went back to the original pulp stories. That's way back in season one, you guys. Yeah, that's. Like, <laughs> I wonder if he's even gonna hear this. <laughs> it might be a while. Like years after. <laughs> Eventually, um, it says if I bring up things you've already addressed in later episodes, please ignore this. We're not gonna ignore it. By Crom, we're gonna we're gonna read it word for word at fifty one. I think I'm a bit older than you guys. Fortunately, old enough to have seen Star Wars, Blade Runner, and of course Conan in their original run in the theaters. Back in the day, I also came across Conan secondhand. In the mid to late 70s, when I was a kid, you could buy discounted three packs of Marvel comics at convenience stores. But the thing was, you could only see the cover of the first comic book in the clear plastic package. I was a big Iron Man slash Avengers fan, so I would grab anything with my favorites in the front of the pack. And at almost every purchase, I would have a lame Conan comic wedged in the middle. Since I was all about the superheroes at the time, I didn't even read most of the Conan issues until a few years later after I developed a preternatural connoisseur's appreciation for scantily clad wenches, uh, which I retain to this day. Yeah, so we can see here uh, from from what Pat talks about, like he he shares a similar name to to Harold Lamb, and that's someone that we've talked about previously on the uh, on the website. But this. Uh, this fellow was also a pulp, a pulpist, right? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, there's Kilt the Cossack was a major influence on Conan. Uh, and there's a variety of books that are uh, Lamb collection. So Harold Lamb, right? And right. So, so, so Pat Lamb himself seems to be a bit of a, of an expert on Harold Lamb. Right. Uh, but he, he points us towards a specific complete, uh, Cossack collection, the Wolf of the Steps, the complete Cossack adventures volume one. You can get that on Kindle for 10 bucks. And so we'll definitely put a link in the show notes for that. But this, uh, Harold Lamb author is someone we've talked about. One of the many pulp writers that we, that we need to get to at some point. Right. And he says, thanks for all the shows, Pat Lamb. Uh, we have an email from Matthew from Montreal, who says, Hi, guys. I'm listening to the first episode of the current season about Fritz, Fritz Leiber. I've been following your podcast for about a year, starting with Solomon Kane, Listening to the Chromecast after every story. By then, I had already read all the Conan yarns and decided to revisit them. For the Chromecast, one could say, in 
audiobook form. I really enjoyed it and heartily recommend. As I've discovered more and more stories from REH collecting the books, I followed you along, reading and then listening to you guys. I really want to thank you for this great show. I was a little disappointed that you didn't continue with Howard for the sixth season, but I guess it's good to change gears a little and look at some other great sword and sorcery authors. I might be a little too intense about REH, but I like the Chromecast so much, I got Ilmet and Linkmar just to try a library, audiobook again. Great stuff. I thought it was refreshing to have some such great female characters for a change. I like the tone, humor, and the style. But then he killed the girls. Such an asshole, that Fritz. And then the rest of the story was disappointing. Kind of a rushed hack and slash revenge quest without the gut feeling of Howardian rage. Anyhow, I liked it enough to want to listen to more of it. I got Swords Against Death and looking forward to follow Fawford and the Gray Mouser as well as you guys. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Matthew, for that email. We appreciate it, and we hope you're enjoying your uh, jaunt through uh, Nehuan and your jaunt through Libra's works. Yeah, I like the idea of of people p- being able to have picked up the material, you know, just on this basis. So, uh, yeah, if, if people are discovering Libra. Because of this, that's great. Uh, You're welcome, Liber Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. All right, so uh, we'll 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 move we'll move along. Uh, we have an email here from Mark from Cologne. We're getting international here. We had Canada. Now we're moving to Germany. That's uh, awesome. Mark from uh, Germany says he stumbled over the podcast. Uh, he listened to Beyond the Black River. He basically was into Mark Finn before discovering the podcast and had ordered uh, Mark Finn's book. And then, lo and behold, there was Mark Finn on the show. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that is a cool coincidence. Glad, glad you're digging it, dude. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, let's see here. Uh, final, final email. We have we two have, more. Two more. Oh, two more. So we have uh, Chris or... Uh, Christopher. Christopher. Uh, he Not says, Topher, ever. <laughs> He says, I don't normally get to writing since his podcast consumption is outside the normal space time. Uh, but he really enjoyed the Solomon Kane discussions and he's loving on Bourbon and Barbarians, which is pretty cool. That's near and dear to me as the, as the dungeon master of that, that shenanigans. I'm on episode 19 after a binge, which is ongoing. And that just still makes me feel weird. Like to think that anybody wants to listen to like hours of the Dungeons and Dragons, but whatever. If that's your shenanigans, that's cool. I'm Uh, glad people are liking it. We literally just got an email from Eric who says, uh, hello guys. I just discovered the Chromecast recently. I'm a huge Ari e. Howard fa- uh, Conan fan, and I recently just spent a lot of time listening to every single one of the original podcasts you guys did a few years back on his stories. I really enjoy listening to you guys talk about the stories, and you have given me several things to think about that I had never considered before. I am sort of rediscovering Fawford and the Gray Mouser along with you. I had known about the stories for a long time, but never read any of them. And now I'm following along with you guys as, as you read them. Makes me seriously want to play some D&D. You should. Find a group. Do it. I recently tweeted at you asking if you were going to do the Elric of Melnabonea stories. I know they are really, really bizarre at times with the different planes of existence, law versus chaos and whatnot. And they are not for everyone. But I would sure like to listen to you guys trying to wrap up uh, wrap your minds around them and debate about them someday. 
Anyway, I know you have your hands full right now with Libraryworks. You guys are doing a great thing, and I just wanted to drop a line telling you how much I appreciate it. Eric, thank you so much. That's I still it blows my mind, and I know we started this podcast in 2013, but it blows my mind that people listen to us. Yeah, it's hundreds, uh, maybe even thousands, dozens and dozens, literally <laughs> tens of hundreds. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, I like the idea of doing Elric stories, uh, and I like Elric, and we've talked about. I mean, I'm a Morkark fan. I, I think. I think he's he's a cool dude. Yeah. Had you had you read those Elric stories before I made you read them? Mm-mm, no, I hadn't. No, no, no. But since then, like he's, I think there's that is a that's a that's a that's a mine that's rife for digging in. Yeah, there's a lot I of agree. Material there, but it would be just offhand. We haven't put a lot of time into thinking about how a season could be structured. Yeah. I mean, clearly there's lots of different. Uh, aspects of the Eternal Champion to talk about. True. Even if you were just wanting to talk about the Eternal Champion. I mean, Elric's the is the coolest. Uh, yes. With, with a K. Uh, E-W-L. The coolest. <laughs> uh, but there's there's a lot of stuff there to get into, so, yeah. so bear with us. I mean, give us a year or two. We will absolutely get there. I, I can't imagine us not talking about Michael Moorcock's Elric saga. In, I'll keep talking in, about it in some capacity, and and we actually talked about it before we started recording tonight. So we'll have an unveiling in another episode or two. That's true. You just sit tight, Josh. Where can the good people find us? They can direct their web browsers to http colon forward slash forward slash thecromcast.blogspot.com. You can tweet at us at thecromcast. You can email us. Email us your feedback. We want to know what you think. Thecromcast at gmail dot com. And if you're brave enough. That's right. It's a challenge. If you are brave enough, you can call 859-429-CROM and you can leave your thoughts in 60 second intervals, right? <laughs> uh, about these stories, what you're thinking about the road to Linkmar, what RPGs Luchador you're playing, name. what your Luchador name will be. What are you doing in your leisure hours before the end of your life? <laughs> That's right. Just to bring it real, like, for a second. How are you spending your time? You, you've only got hours. Minutes. Seconds. This moment. This moment. This magic it's, moment. It's transient. You're going to sing some Eminem to, to, to take us out, Luke? Damn, I didn't mean to get it all, like, serious. <laughs> so, anyway, what I'm trying to say here is that... Everything you do right now counts. It means something. It's meaningful. (laughs) And we will see you a little bit further down the road to Linkmore.
Like the uh, I like the apple wine drunk that's coming on, dude. Yeah, I do too. It's uh, <laughs> I, it is uh, subtle. It is, yeah. It's not like it's no, more... but I know that I'm drunk. Yeah, <laughs> right on, <laughs> right on, right on, right on, right on. <laughs>